When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. Oh, I can't remember. He's, he's a writer, remember? I mean, he's full of imagination. I could give um, you the names, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. In this episode, we're talking to the author, Jill Hornby. My name's Jill Hornby, and I am Nick Hornby's younger sister. And her brother, the author, Nick Hornby. Hi, I'm Nick Hornby, and Jill Hornby is my younger sister. You just whistle bits of old songs. So you're on the phone to someone who's in an office in America, and he's, sing- he's singing, my old man said, follow the van or something. And you just had to stand yeah. there until it was over. But I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. Not getting on with your siblings is the great benefit you, you can draw from having an over-secure home. You know, if you're from a dysfunctional background, you cling to each other like orphans in the storm. I think if you stay very close to your sibling when you're both, you know, we're both in our early 60s, that seems something to be quite proud of. Brothers and sisters are never straightforward. Jill and Nick Hornby are both writers. Their childhood changed dramatically after their father left, and as adults, they still sometimes talk about the aftermath. We talk about that, about teenage kicks and living in a party house, and spending Saturdays at the library. But Jill started by describing what life was like before everything became strange and baffling for them both. When we were very little, you know, up to the age of me, six or seven, we lived in a kind of nice house on a close and it was all families and we played in the street with the other kids and the parents were all really good friends and there were street party things and events and fireworks nights and it was all very, very nice. Tell me about Jill as a little sister. When you were small, what kind of little sister was she and how did you get on? I think we got on fine. Um, my late mother told me that when I was told I had a little sister, I looked out the window and said, oh, look, there's Duncan, which was my friend from next door. Um, and that was how I marked her arrival. But um, I think after that, we were we were quite close, yeah. My first day of school, I remember it being very terrified and the scratchy winter uniform and everything mm. too big for me as usual. And just sitting in this completely alien environment. And then at break time, anyone with an older brother or sister, they could come down and have their milk with them because we used to get that free milk, third of a pint of milk, disgusting hot. Blech. And the door opened and in came my big brother and 
that feeling of just seeing this piece of home turn up and also just the kind of coolness of having a big brother. And in he walked, this sort of tiny child in little shorts and stuff. I thought he was the Fonz. And then he taught me how to blow bubbles through a straw. It was, um, it was brilliant. I have no idea that I did that. It doesn't sound like me. I, I think she's making it up. But um, that's nice that she remembers that, yeah. Clearly I was looking out for her. And then when I get to about seven or eight, it all goes a bit dark because my father starts to be more and more and increasingly absent um, without any kind of explanation to to children. And my mum used to cry rather a lot and it was all a bit strange and baffling. That is when it changed. So for those people who, who don't know exactly what happened, what was your dad up to or what exactly did happen? Well, uh, we were made aware eventually that my dad had another family elsewhere. You know, he had two younger children. He'd sort of done the same thing again 10 years later. So he had a boy and a girl and the boy was older than the girl and the boy was dark and the girl was blonde. It was quite weird. <laughs> I was first made aware of it, rather dreadful family outing where we stopped at a garage and my mum started messing around in the glove compartment and found something, maybe a christening card or something like that, that was kept in there um, unwisely by my father. And we just turned straight round and went home again. I mean, she found out in the most ridiculous way of finding a christening card in the glove compartment of the car to my dad and somebody else on the christening of their child. That was how she found my out. God. So it was, as I say, extremely well dealt with. Can you remember how you made sense of that strange and baffling time as a little, I mean, seven and eight, it's very small. I made no sense of it at all because I wasn't told anything. Nick was told a bit more, but didn't pass it on so I just thought he was away on work because that's what I was told and he did work in a different place but it all became a bit odd because he didn't come home at weekends he just often turn up in the week my our mum died just before Christmas and there were things like exercise books from when we were little in, a, in her house because she was a great one for literally never throwing <laughs> anything away and it said yesterday which was a Wednesday my daddy came home and we went out to lunch and I had chips. And so in order to fit us in, we were taken out of school for a day. I look back at that now and think, how completely weird. Mm. And Jill also said that you knew, or she seems to recollect that you knew more than she knew at the time. Uh, I wonder what she knew. I don't think I knew an awful lot. I knew that my father was ensconced elsewhere, but I didn't know about his kids for about three or four years after that. He'd, he was living in France and um, I was going to go and stay with him, which felt like a big step because I hadn't met my stepmother at that stage. Mm. And then um, my mum said to me, well, I'd better tell you because he's not going to, you know, he's got two kids over there. And... Um, Obviously, it was an unbelievable shock. My mum was washing up that night and I was drying and I said, I'd quite like to go to France too, you know. 
he's got a swimming pool and she said you do know he's got a wife and two children as well don't you and I said oh well no I didn't and I got my bike and I went around to my best friend I said you'll never guess and she said yeah I know and I went to school and everybody knew I said to Nick why didn't you tell me he said I thought you didn't like talking about it and you know in the 60s and 70s they didn't do child psychology well not round our way they didn't anyway never occurred to them I don't think that it might be our issue as well it was very much their drama and we were just sort of collateral it was a bit odd and also somewhat unusual in those days I mean divorce is so much more common now but then it was you were something of a curio I think yeah I can remember a kid coming up to me at school and saying is it true your parents are divorced (laughs) can you remember what you said to him I, I think I just said yes, but I can remember, you know, my face flushing with the sort of shame of it, really. <laughs> I think now a kid would come up and say, is it true your parents are together? Very true. Jill also mentioned that there was no such thing really as child psychology or pastoral support or even a consideration that you kids might be anything more than collateral in this whole unfurling drama. Did you, or do you now as an adult, have a sense that that's true? Oh, yeah, completely, yeah. And because my mum was, you know, understandably deeply, deeply hurt and upset by the whole thing, you couldn't ever talk about it at home either. And my dad was really too far away and too disconnected to have any conversation. So it just never got spoken about, really. And what about your relationship with Nick? You say that he protected you and said you didn't want to talk about things and he knew things and you didn't know things, but... The way that you talk about him, it implies you were still close, despite that sort of weird miscommunication. Oh, completely. Uh, when I see my um, over-secure children bickering, I think not getting on with your siblings is the great benefit you, you can draw from having an over-secure home, you know, and that if you're from a dysfunctional background, you cling to each other like orphans in the storm. And we were the only people who understood, even though we didn't properly talk about it till we were older, we were the only people who understood each other's situation. Our friends were all from families of complete regularity. You know, God knows what was going on behind closed doors, but Mm. everybody lived in the same house. So how would you describe Nick? Um, Well, obviously, deeply intelligent, very, very funny, extremely sensitive, and that used to worry me. I think it's worried me, it worried me all, all of our lives, really, is that I felt things for him almost more than I did for myself. And, and when he was hurt, it kind of stabbed me right in the heart. I found it very uncomfortable. Do you recognise oh. that description of yourself as sensitive when you were smaller? Yes, I think I probably do. Um, I, I've been chipping away at it ever since. I, I, I think it's all gone now. <laughs> In what ways were you sensitive? Uh, I was very small and slight and I, I was quite shy. Uh, stuff like that, I think. I didn't, I didn't stand up for myself a lot. I mean, I... I was in the B stream all the way through school and I think I probably shouldn't have been there. But neither me or my mother ever said anything about it wouldn't have occurred to her what you mean no. you, were, you were cleverer than that you should have been up in the a stream well it turned out all right <laughs> <laughs> there weren't many people in the a stream frankly who went to cambridge 
and so I, I do think they kind of had it wrong. You know, it was a, a grammar school that became a, a comprehensive. So, you know, a few people went to university, but a lot of my friends left school at 16 to work and so on. At our school, there was the A stream, and then they didn't call it B stream. They called it X, Y, and Z. <laughs> 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 uh, as some kind of egalitarian gesture. <laughs> So at that age, you didn't have sort of self-confidence to say, excuse me, this is all very easy and I'm not really at home in this XYZ stream. No. But I remember the punch up at home when mum found out you were not in the A stream. And really? Who was was punching who? I think mum was punching you. (laughs) (laughs) For your abject failure. Oh, but she never went to school. I think he's quite clever. He He should move up. Just a clip round the ear. Yeah. Uh, that's for nothing. Now do something was one of my mother's yeah, catchphrases. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's for next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I sort of listen to a lot of sibling stories, and most family stories seem to be sort of extraordinary in one way or another, and the siblings seem to be in this sort of rather beautiful but quite intense way, kind of keepers of each other's memories and stories, and particularly with you guys, because it was such a drama do you still retain that sense of kind of holding the other person's sort of reality back then yeah completely i mean absolutely Jill's the only person in the world who knows my reality and vice versa and we talk about it a lot don't we and things still come up yeah yeah odd moments still come up of of these strange flashes of memory of the weird stuff that went on I mean, I find it fascinating and that other people in the room never have sort of openly said it's boring because it is also <laughs> blooming odd. No, we can make um, people laugh with it, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we were, the, we were the keepers of memories even when our parents were alive because they had such a partial oh, absolutely. view of things. I mean, obviously, neither of them were in position to see the whole picture anyway, but, but for various reasons, yeah. they wanted to tuck things under the carpet as well. Mm. It was all completely and utterly buried. And I and Nick too, we really took refuge in books. Mm. It was books, books, books all the time. And my mother was really good at encouraging reading and music and all those things. And she used to take us to the library every Saturday morning and drop us off. I don't think you're allowed to do this anymore. <laughs> drop us off when she went and did all the shopping and had coffee with a friend or whatever. And I think we were allowed to take out four books. And so we had some going on the shelves that we'd, um, you know, read from week to week and hide them on the shelf <laughs> and then take out our four and finish those a week. Yeah, the library loomed large in our young life and then also in my teenage life because we used to go there to revise for O-levels and A-levels. And because we both went to single-sex schools, the library was one of the places where you got to meet up with with girls from Jill's school. Heady days at the library. Yes. Yeah, when we became teenagers, then our lives really collided because we both got jobs in boots. He was in the storeroom and I was on the till and lots of our mates had jobs in boots and we were all going out with each other's friends because we were the sort of perfect age arrangement and we go to lots of parties together and we were part of this huge gang and I guess we were at the middle of it really because it was always our house that everybody ended up to at midnight where the wild stuff happened. 
Well, um, Jill is and was uh, very beautiful um, when she was a teenager, and my friends would take one look at her. And, um, you know, I can remember quite often people I didn't know very well suddenly knocking on the front door and, <laughs> and me answering the door and thinking, what's he doing here? And then he'd say, oh, is Jill around? <laughs> I think, oh, okay, that's what he's doing here. She had two simultaneous boyfriends, both in my year at school, when she was in the sixth form, uh, or maybe even fifth form. And I think they both knew about each other, actually. But she had a brainy boyfriend and a very athletic boyfriend. Um, <laughs> Smart woman. Yeah, yeah. Between them, they made one proper boyfriend, I think. And um, he used to gain entrance late at night through my bedroom window. <laughs> Well, you'd be literally woken up by somebody treading over your bed or something. (laughs) Well, I had this flat roof outside my bedroom, so I'd be woken by someone reaching through the little window in order to open the bigger window. (laughs) And then I'd think, oh, bloody hell, it's wrong. And um, I'd I'd open the window and let him in and he'd he'd disappear. Oh, I can't remember. He's just... He's a writer, remember? I mean, he's full of imagination. I could give um, you the names, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit chaotic. It was a bit chaotic till I met the love of my life and settled down, yes. And Nick knew all of them and was rather in the middle of it because he was going to school with all of them. All of them. <laughs> I was going to say, it's gone from two to all. That's a different... <laughs> were they good days those days oh yeah they were really funny and um we laughed a lot from the age of about 16 onwards it was it was all quite a laugh and it was as my sister has often said a bit like a frat house um my mum liked our friends coming around she'd drink with them up to a certain point and then go to bed and we'd carry on downstairs and then she'd she'd bang on the ceiling with a slipper if she thought we were getting too noisy <laughs> did he tell you about when they all when the boys all used to streak down the road but i remember one particular night when streaking was um in vogue in the mid 70s and um myself and a group of friends charged up the street naked and when we came back my mum had shut us out and there was a hand coming through the letterbox with a pair of scissors and she was yelling I'll cut it off I'll cut it off (laughs) it was that kind of relationship at home (laughs) 
there was a huge amount of laughter. I don't want to paint this picture of this sort of of this household with dark clouds <laughs> spooling around it because actually the dark clouds only came in when my dad used to ring home once a fortnight and nobody had anything to say to him. That was always a bit sort of grim and the phone would ring and I'd go, you get it, and he'd say, no, you get it, and then we'd stand and we literally had nothing to say to him. I think it, a relationship with kids only really works if you see them several times a week and, and you know what's going on. You can't say to a kid, how is your life going? How is your school going? But that was pretty much what we were reduced to because he didn't have that regular contact. So, yeah, he took me to football when he was in London and we, we had the odd slightly dismal early evening meal out. Um, so it, it, it definitely was strained by the absence. I mean, our dad didn't know anything about our lives. I went to an ice skating party once when I was 10. Until I was 16, he was saying to me, so, done any ice skating lately? <laughs> I, never, <laughs> I never went again. <laughs> I, I remember him whistling a lot on the phone because it was li- oh, the there was whistling. literally nothing to say. Uh, so he just, he just whistled bits of old songs. So you're on the phone to someone who's in an office in America. And he's, sing, he's singing, my old man said, follow the van or something. And he just had to stand yeah. there until it was over. Oh, that one about she had a bunion and a face like a pickled <laughs> onion. I didn't like that one. Is there any sh- shred of sympathy for that awkward man sitting in an office somewhere talking oh, to yeah, his children? Oh, yeah, now there is. No! Yeah. I, I have sympathy. Oh, I don't have. I don't. I don't. Talk about the author of his own complications. The phone rang in a different way, didn't it? <laughs> Everyone's eyes would narrow around the table and look at one another. Well, especially Christmas Day. Yeah. Oh, God, that was the worst. Yeah. Those are painful phone calls. We never spent Christmas with him, not once, not after 1966. Never once did we see him on Christmas Day. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. England won the World Cup and then that was that. <laughs> job done whenever he was around he would come and take Nick to football because Nick was so desperate to go which meant that there was no time left over really to spend with me and so he'd come and pick Nick up from the doorstep because he wasn't allowed over the doorstep by that point give me a wave and a sort of cheery word and they'd go off together for the whole day and then he'd drop Nick back and I'd have another wave and a cheery word and that's what it was like really for several years because um, the footballers just moved in and removed the both of them. Hmm. Were you aware um, that your dad paid you more attention or seemed more interested in you than Jill? (laughs) Um, Well I think unfortunately football was a big thing. Um, It was one of the only ways in which I did get to speak to my dad and, and Jill didn't want to go and had no interest in going. And uh, and so I ended up spending more time with him than, than she did. And were you aware of her upset at that or not really at the time? I think not really at the time, but, you know, we were all upset about everything, really. <laughs> I mean, that side of things. When I had a one-year-old and I'd given up work and I was pregnant with my second, we didn't have any childcare or anything, and my mum used to come up and give me Tuesdays off so I could do something, you know, half the time I'd just go to the supermarket. And for a bit, 
I just used to drive around crying because there was me with this 18-month-year-old daughter who I loved more than I thought it was possible to love anything. And that was when I got a new perspective on it because, you know, I was somebody's daughter and the idea that my dad had just gone off and lived... We didn't have his phone number, for example. He'd gone off and lived somewhere else and, and we couldn't have got in touch with him and he got in touch with us on his basis. That was just a whole new world of hurt that I hadn't quite seen or had revealed to me or owned up to before, I think. When you became a dad yourself, and um, and Jill said when she became a mum, that she had this sort of quite tumultuous period of processing what had happened to her as a child now having her own baby and I wondered if you'd shared a sort of similar experience at any point of reprocessing your childhood. Your child gets to a certain age and you think oh this is when my dad went and um, you know I've been married twice and um, one of the things that happened when I split up for my first wife is that we agreed never to live further than a couple of roads away from each other. So um, that particular problem hasn't, hasn't happened. But I did feel quite angry with my dad then, yeah. Did you talk to Jill about it? I can't it? remember a specific conversation about that, but we've, we've talked a lot about my dad over the years. Hmm. Do you think you've sort of made your peace with him, like man, man to man? I know he's no longer here, but... Do you feel like you, there's a sense of resolution now when you think about him? I think um, I think I made my peace quite a long time ago, but it came in the form of sort of cauterized nerves, really. Um, if if you sort of mean that, uh, I I didn't feel a- angry with him when I was an adult very much apart from, like I say, with my kids. But I felt a little bit more amiable than um, is is the way with a parent, I think. Uh, you know, I didn't mind seeing him, but he hadn't been a part of my life growing up. And, and I was very fond of him, but... Um, there'd been something missing and because it was missing I, I I didn't feel eventually didn't feel the lack of it I see what you mean yeah that takes a while to get to that point maybe yeah I think it probably did take a while and I think it affected me and Jill in different ways how do you think it affected her I think she she didn't feel as cauterized as I did, actually. Um, I think maybe it, it felt rawer to her for longer. Yeah. This is probably a bit cheeky, so you can say poke <laughs> off. But um, do you think okay. the whole thing has made you quite tough emotionally in some ways? Uh, no, I think it's made me the opposite. But I think it's made me very, very hyper-aware of character traits in others. For example... If only there was I a mean, job where you different. could use that. <laughs> exactly. But um, there, it's so different in so many ways. But I look at our current Prime Minister and he does a dad 
every single day. You know, like yesterday saying, I didn't lie. I didn't lie. No, 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 no. I didn't lie. Go tell them I didn't lie. Um, that's exactly, my dad would lie. And then he would deny the lie and deny it and deny it, wouldn't he? Yeah, it was quite strange and, and, until they, he would just backed into the corner and there was no, no way out. Probably Boris is whistling down the phone every day as well. <laughs> to some of his kids. Yeah, some of them. Yeah, the ones yes. he's still got the numbers for. And did you feel like you had to be a sort of two-way buffer if your mum couldn't bear the name of your dad's well that was awkward yeah. because of course you can imagine I mean we didn't have a flashy childhood at, at all and um so we'd go over there and it was all sports cars and blah blah, blah. she didn't come to France that first year but she did the next summer I think um and we both went to um, America together to see him which was pretty glamorous in 1975 or whatever what was strange is that my dad and his family were living a, a different life to the one that me and Jill had had because he was on this sort of meteoric rise through business and you know, ended up doing really well. But he, he left my mum much earlier in that journey. So uh, there was a marked difference in the upbringing of of the two pairs of kids but um it wasn't something i ever felt particularly unhappy about i quite liked the way that we'd been brought up (laughs) did you feel disloyal for enjoying the spoils of his success when you were with him yeah and um and i sort of uh made a mental note to myself to moan a lot when i went home um to my mum because i knew she'd find that consoling I used to be out there having a really nice time and then have this thud of guilt in my stomach. Oh, it was awful. Oh, the conflict within one was just... Anyway. Well, the push and pull of loyalty is really hard, isn't it, with parents who've disappointed you? It's terrible. It's terrible. And our loyalty was 100% in one direction. But then the other direction was very seductive, you know. And we were teenagers and... We were in the south of France. And, and he had a swimming pool. It was pool all a bit and, better, Yeah, frankly. there was always yeah. Coke in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> chips. That's a big chips. deal. Chips everywhere. <laughs> so, finally, um, how would you describe Jill? Um, well, I have to say, I think our relationship is kind of remarkable because I, I think if you stay very close to your sibling when you're both... You know, we're both in our early 60s and, and we've maintained a close relationship throughout. That seems something to be quite proud of, I think. You know, to a certain extent, there's a lot of luck involved. You need to like each other's partners. You need to share more or less the same values. You need similar interests. And um, all that has happened brilliantly. You know, I, I love Robert and we spend summers together and Christmases together, and we laugh a lot. Jill's very funny. Um, it's it's a really strong and proper relationship. Um, but yeah, Jill's always been incredibly warm to me, um, supportive, really supportive of my kids. Yeah, she's she's a wonderful aunt. I have to say, great sister, great aunt. Your sister started writing 
married to a writer, brother's a writer. She started writing after 50. I'm not going to ask a banal question about being competitive between the two of you because I take it as given that there's enough success to go around in the writing world. But I wondered what it felt like that she kind of joined you in doing something that you did and whether there was something lovely about that or whether I'm just looking for a neat bow to tie it up with. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I mean, I, I, I was worried for her when she decided that that's what she wants to do because, um, you know, me and Robert have both done much better than either of us thought we would with our writing and it seemed like a tough position for her to occupy but you know it's it's worked out for her and she's found absolutely found her own place which is incredibly brave and and admirable I knew he was original and rather extraordinary that he had this way of looking at the world that was so funny and and acute and and nobody else thought like that and so one knew that he could sort of be very amazing as an adult. But you you also never know that there are lots of people with extraordinary talent in in the creative arts and sport as well, actually. People who have so much promise and then life interrupts because there's, there's a lot of chance involved and character, of course, and also luck. And... And it sort of held him up in a way that he was so obsessed with football that he couldn't do very much. Because when we left, left university, I just sort of, you know, went and got a job and worked in TV and had a flat and a car. And he was really, really late starter anyway, but also quite hidebound by the fact that his moods were utterly dominated by, you know, 3-2 against Stoke or something like that. And the fact that writing a book about being obsessed, so obsessed with football, was the thing that made him a writer was rather beautiful. And I hope that happens to a lot of old people in the world. But I think it was quite quite a rare stroke of luck. Mm. Do, you, do you look for his approval or are you beyond that? Yes. No, I'm not beyond it. Oh, well, I feel the same way. Um... Yeah, it's, I think it's it's very important for both of us, each other's approval. Sometimes I think about what it would have been like if I'd gone through it as an only child. And I don't think I'd be here. I'd have been with a needle out of my arm in some alley somewhere. Um, I think together we were able to get through it. And then since then, you know, as we say, we know each other's truth, as is the current <laughs> phrase. Um, and... And just a very deep friendship has come out of it, I suppose. When I got engaged to Robert, I said to Nick, I'm so glad you like him. And he said, we wouldn't be marrying him otherwise. <laughs> and actually, it's true. I don't think I'd have dared. <laughs> Thank you to Jill and to Nick and to Tanita Tukaram for letting us use this amazing song. Sound design is by Nick Carter at Mixonics, digital production by Charlotte Griffiths and technical support from Dan King at Loftus Media. Thank you too for listening. Next week it's the writer Hashi Muhammad Hashi and his sister Shukri Hashi. They talk about being refugees as children, learning to fit in and the wonder of Heinz baked beans. If you want to see some really sweet pictures of Nick or Noodle and Jill, 
or find out more about the podcast, head to relativelypodcast.com. Please do rate and review this episode wherever you found this podcast, as it does help others to find us too. Well, you know what? You could just recommend it to your brother or sister. of love and hate Stand by the fireside Another rain may fall Your father's calling you You still feel safe inside Although your ma's too proud Your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.